Amen. Great. Well, uh, go ahead and uh, grab a seat. If you all uh, need a Bible and don't have one, uh, we have a few Bibles in the back. Um, just raise your hand and we'll bring one to you. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, um, know that you can take one before you go. It's our gift to you. I want to make sure if there's one book you own, it's that, um, as that is what we love to study and read, and it's also uh, the best book you'll ever own. Um, why don't we, uh, let's start in just a, another word of prayer that God would, would do something great this morning in us and through us, and then uh, we will see what he desires to say. God, thank you that you're a God who speaks. Uh, thank you that you're a God that's not silent, that you've given us your word, uh, to know what is true and what is not. Um, God, we pray even specifically um, now that you do a special work here among us, uh, specifically in regards to uh, protection, God, advancement of your kingdom, uh, God, awareness of the spiritual war that we are in. God, give us courage, give us endurance, give us perseverance. Uh, Lord, help us to understand how to wear the armor, how to understand the spiritual things. Uh, God, also remember as well that you have won, that you defeated Satan's sin and death. And God, we are grateful that you have rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into marvelous light. Um, lead us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible, you can go to Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6 is where we're going to be. And um, just as, as way of reminder, if you uh, weren't here last week, it's going to be really important for you to listen to last week's sermon because it's going to get you up to speed as to where we are. Last week was kind of a, a high-level introduction as to what the spiritual war is before we kind of get on the ground and deal with the practicality of how we live life amidst this Christian war. Um, and we talked last week a lot how um, this is a war. This is a labor. This is not a stroll. So the Bible talks a lot about how we walk now, right? A man are worthy of our calling. Chapter 4 kind of swung that way and showed us how now we live in light of who we are in Christ. But this walk just means it's a walk in the sense of there's pace, right? There's ups and downs. There's different things going on. But it's also not a stroll. It's not easy because there's a real enemy who really hates what God is doing. And so we said, hey, as we gather, as we worship, we have to remember that it's not just us and God. Right? There's a third party involved, right? that being a real enemy who wants to discourage, who wants to deceive, who wants to cause condemnation or feelings of guilt that are not of Jesus or what Jesus has taught us or rescued us out of. And uh, we're going to see a lot more of that this morning. Um, and so what he's basically doing, this is what Paul's basically doing. He's taking the last 139 verses that we've walked through as a faith family together in, and he's kind of rolling them all up and going, okay, here's how you now kind of practically end all this and put it out in practice. So it's not just about you being a good husband or being a good wife, being a good dad, being a good mom, being good children. It's not just about you walking wisely around outsiders or not becoming like the world or just distinct from the world. It's more about, hey, how do you take all those things and understand that there's this third party involved in it, so it's not just you waging war and trying to be faithful, it's you being faithful against opposition, right? So it can feel a bit overwhelming because a lot of times we'll read the scriptures and see, okay, it's hard enough for me to even try to just be a faithful walker. And then, then now you're telling me there's, last week there's an uncountable number of demons and angels warring, and that, and that not only do I have my own flesh warring against me, the, the, the residual effects of the fall, but I've got an actual adversary warring against me. And that can seem daunting, right? That can seem overwhelming, but uh, praise God, Jesus has won and that we have Christ. And so there are two things I said I want to remind us of from last week is, one, we live in a day where through like psychology 
and through genetics and through explanation, there's a resistance to the spiritual realm. Right, so we don't, we don't believe that Satan exists. We don't believe demons are real. We think they're just fictional characters. And we kind of dress up like some of them around Halloween. And, but we know that they're actually very real, that they do exist. And we walked through last week some of the myths about them. Can they indwell us? Can they not? How does Satan act? Uh, so we're not going to cover that. There's going to be some overlap this morning you're definitely going to hear. But again, make sure you listen to that because that's going to give us introduction into the rest of this chapter, chapter 6. And so we also saw that not only do people just resist them or do away with them, we also saw that some people just totally over-dramatize Satan too, right? Satan made me eat the donut this morning. No, he didn't. You were gluttony or you were sinful or you were starving and you wanted Dunkin' Donuts and not broccoli, right? Like, or Satan made me cheat on that test. No, you're wicked and you wanted to get a good grade and cheat and not study and be lazy. So there, there's that, that's where you gotta discern. There are times where that's just you being wicked and sinful and God redeeming you out of the dominion of darkness. And then there's also the side of, hey, there's spiritual war. How do we discern that when he's attacking or causing discouragement? And it's not me just trying to justify my sin, those are two very, very different things. And here we're looking at more the opposition that comes from outside of us against a very real spiritual realm. And so we discussed that a lot last week, and we're going to continue to see that this week. Um, and, and finally, last thing I'll say before we look again at verses 10 to 13. Number one, this is a word to the church to, to the, the gathered people of God. So, so here's the temptation when we read letters, and really when we read the New Testament at all, or really even the Bible, right? You think God is saying these things directly to Mike Reed. Mike Reed alone, it's about me and Jesus. We keep him here. You don't infringe on me. You don't wage war with me. You don't get involved with me. You don't call me out when I'm sinning. You don't challenge me at all. It's just about me and Jesus, well, well, what we see, if you read the Bible accurately, is every letter that's written is actually to a church, and so he's actually incurring these brothers and sisters how to live, not just individually. That's absolutely right, encouraging, appropriate, healthy. But he's more saying, you do these things together. This is how you function together. So, so what this means is, is this for you? Absolutely. But this is more for you as a part of Church at Bergen. We're warring together. We're laboring together. We're advancing together. So we need one another. We talked about that last week. Don't get on your island. Don't get on your peninsula and stay out there and hang out. You're gonna get really bitter, really frustrated, really lonely. Then you're gonna get angry at the church for all the ways they don't care for you or love you or do this for you. No, we do this together. We bear burdens together. We love one another together. We need one another, especially in the midst of the spiritual war that we are in because it's serious. And I said that Jesus loves us and Satan hates us. Right, as soon as you start advancing the kingdom, the more shots you'll take. You start following Jesus rightly, all of a sudden life becomes more difficult sometimes, right? I find sometimes in the deepest amounts of difficulty, that's when you're closest to the heart of God. That's when you see more of his grace and kindness. And so we ended last week with the question, what do we do about it? That's where we find ourselves this morning. So we had a, we had a high level Okay, this is kind of the overarching kind of introduction to the spiritual war. We're going to take the same verses, 10 through 13, and look at a little bit of a lower view, a little bit more practical, right before next week we get into, okay, here's how you actually buckle up. Okay, here's how you, how you actually wear your helmet. Here's how you actually put on your breastplate. Here's how you actually use your sword and put on your shoes. We're going to actually look at that next week. But here's just another setup for all of that coming down the pike. So, 
sorry, verse 10, here is what Paul says. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Okay, so here's what you're going to see. Paul's saying finally. Okay, he's wrapping up everything he said. He's going, okay, if you're going to listen, tune in now. Okay, finally, in light of everything I've said, in light of your position in Christ, you being redeemed from the dominion of darkness, me setting my affections upon you before the foundations of the world, me rescuing you, me loving you, making you as rich as my son Christ, making you a co-heir with Christ, sealing you for eternity. You're adopted into a new family. You're rescued from your sin. You're made alive. You're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. I'm giving you the very power that raised Jesus from the dead. I'm putting it inside of you. Okay, your mind's blown by all that. And then he goes, okay, as you walk as you do all those things, finally, this is how it all ties up. This is how it all gets really practical for you. This is what, how you're going to actually have to put into practice all this good theology you're learning. So it's not enough for you just to know stuff. And I think he shows us clearly with just this one text because the assumption from Paul is the Christian life is going to take strength. And it's going to take strength that you don't have in of you. Like you can't like find it within you. Right now that's what Every book in Barnes & Noble is going to tell you, right, and every counsel, most counselors you go to, right, Dr. Phil will tell you that, Oprah will tell you that, The View will tell you that, right? So look in you. Keep searching deep down for some sort of inner strength so you can be a better you. The Bible teaches you're not going to find it. You're going to have a life of endless looking. But, but Jesus did come, and, and he offers a strength that is outside of you, that he offers and gives to you that is actually within you if you're in Christ, So he's showing us there is a strength you tap into that you already have. So he says something profound here. Yes, you can't find the strength in you, but if you're in Christ, if Ephesians 1 through 3 is true of you, you're already infinitely strong. You already have it. Like, like live it. Access it. Like the risen Christ is actually in you. He's repeating that we have this strength. He's remembering back to chapters one, two, and three. What did he say? I pray in chapter one that you would know the surpassing power that raised Christ from the dead that's in you. So he's saying, finally be strong in the very one who's in you. He's not telling you to go search for it. He's reminding you to be strong in the very one who conquered Satan's sin and death. And so, wait a second. These aren't just like past realities. No, they're present celebrations. <laughs> like, like, and this is so common. The cross saved me, right, for back then when I was really bad, and yucky, and drinking, and having sex, doing all that stuff, right? Okay, the cross saved me then, but today what do I do? Now, that same gospel's for you today. It's going to secure you in your future, but it's going to sanctify you today. That same gospel you believe in, you treasure right now, right? So the same Jesus that died for your sins, rose again, defeated Satan, sin, and death, you're treasuring right now. In this spiritual war in 2014, on October 19th, you're accessing the same gospel. Don't, don't buy that lie that, hey, that was for me in the past. Now I'm good. Now I'm moving on on my own. i got to now look for my own real strength because Jesus did what I couldn't accomplish in my past, but now I'm going to overcome what he can't do in my future. That's bad theology. That's an errant way of thinking. No, Jesus does your whole life. The gospel does your whole life. His life, death, burial, resurrection is your life. Right? 
And so here he's showing us be strong in the only one who can. And Paul's just simply reminding. He's reiterating what he's been saying since day one, since you opened up Ephesians and looked at verse one. You need fixing, you need redeeming, you need healing, you need strength, and it can only be found in the person, power, work of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. So until you find it there, you're not gonna find it. And so he reminds us that our strength is in Christ. So we view this Christian war and we view it against the supernatural through the lens of that we've already been given the strength from the very one who already won, right? Now, if we're honest, I think this is appropriate to, to mention. I've said this before. As Christians, we spend most of our life chasing things that you already have. So often, right? So what are, what are the things you pray for? So often we're like, man, God, I need strength. Well, he said in Philippians 4, he's already strengthened you in Christ. Jesus, right? Well, well, I need love. God, I really need love. Okay, well, I already gave you unconditional, unending, generous, overly abundant love in the cross of Christ. You have it. You have the love from Christ right now. I've given you that love. I'm lavishing that love on you. I'm continuing to give you that love. We say, God, I need grace. Right, I really, okay, okay, you gave me love, you gave me strength, I really need grace. And he's going, man, I already said my grace is fully sufficient for you. 2 Corinthians 12, I've already given you the grace that will enable you to overcome and sustain you. You have it. You have that grace. There are many things we say, I, I need peace. God, I don't have peace, right? What did he say when he left? He said, my peace I give to you. He gave us his peace, namely in his Holy Spirit. So if you have his Holy Spirit, you have peace. So if you're not feeling peace or experiencing peace, it's not because he hasn't given it to you. It's because either your sin has gotten in the way, your flesh is in the way, or Satan's opposing that, or hindering that, or causing you to look somewhere else for peace and not for where the Bible says there to be peace. We see a lot of these things, and so biblically, what are we called to do then? And what does the Bible tell us to do? The Bible says, ask for wisdom. Well, wisdom would say not to ask for something you already have, right? So, so we say, hey, God, either, either help me to understand this peace that you already said surpasses understanding, or help me to access the strength you've already given me, or help me to embrace or understand the love that you've already shown me in Christ, and help me to walk in that. I know you've already given it to me. I know I'm whole in Christ. I know I'm fully put back together. I know you fixed me, redeemed me, done all that. So it can help me, to, help me to walk in newness of life. I mean, so many Christians just walk in self-pity, joyless. You have no reason for that. Yes, there are deep difficulties. When I say joyless, I don't mean that you're not smiling. I'm talking about that, that deep sense of security and identity and refuge that's unshakable at the end of the day. That as you weep tears and as you cry and as you pour your heart out, it lands on something firm. Okay? It doesn't land on something that has cracks. It doesn't land on something that's going to break away or leave you hanging or have the floor fall out from under you. It actually lands on something that is utterly firm. Okay? That's where our refuge is. That's where we land if we're in Christ. So this is a, a great reminder that, that we don't chase what we've already been given. We actually land on what has already been given that's firm for us where we can plant our feet. 
Now, now this is also interesting. If you read 2 Timothy, what does Paul do? He encourages a young pastor. Now, this guy, Timothy's a young pastor. He actually pastored Ephesus, this church, and this letter we're talking about. And, and as he pastored this church, here's what he does. He starts encouraging him because he's really discouraged. In chapter two, because he's, everyone's looked down on him because he's young, everyone's hassling him, saying, you got bad doctrine, and you know, Paul's telling him to take wine for his stomach because he's feeling actually physically ill from everything that's happening. And what does he say at the end of chapter two to encourage him? He says, above everything I've said, remember Jesus Christ, the seed of David, risen from the dead. What is he doing? What is Paul doing? He's saying, remember, Timothy, the greatness of the person who lives inside you above everything else. Seed of David, remember he's his humanity. Right? He can sympathize with your weakness. He can identify with your struggles. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to weep. He knows what it's like to lose loved ones. He knows what it's like to feel burdened. Then what does he also say? Risen from the dead. Remember, though, he's fully God, right? Unceasing power is in his name. He reminds him of the very one who lives within Timothy. He doesn't tell him to go read some books and look deeper within himself. He points him to the reality that's true, which is Jesus. And so he's reminding him this Jesus Christ is above all rulers, all authorities, all powers, all dominions. I don't care if they're good angels, bad angels, demons, helpers, human adversaries, human governments. Your strength is in me. So first we understand where our strength is found. Then he moves to understanding the enemy. Verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle... I find this surprising. Flesh and blood. I want to say all we wrestle is flesh and blood. The government's our enemy, right? America. It's going down the tubes. Don't worry. We'll talk about that. Hold on. Okay? Government ain't your enemy. Okay? Obama isn't your enemy. Senators and Congress aren't your enemy. We don't wrestle flesh and blood, but against who? The rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Okay, so we learn that our enemy has schemes. It's very important to know. We talked last week how this doesn't only happen on an earthly scale, but a cosmic scale. Right, so, so we mentioned last week briefly, there is in the Greek language an uncountable word to describe how many demons and angels are actually waging war in the spiritual realm. Right, we said, how come God made an infinite universe with all that space and all that happens is kind of down here on the ground? He said, well, because there's a war going on. Now, parts of that comes down here, but we saw glimpses of that war in Daniel when he prays. He sends an angel, God sends an angel to answer that prayer, and a demon actually hinders the angel from getting to Daniel. So we see there, there is a war happening there. That's just for awareness sake. Like, like wake up. That's going on. There's a cosmic level, but there's also an on the ground level. That's what we're learning right here. There's this, there's this walking war that's happening in the spiritual realm. And so it needs to get more personal, right? He's got schemes. Now, we know at the end of the day that this is real in the Christian life. We know because Jesus talked about Satan and was tempted himself by Satan. 
Paul talks about him. Peter talks about him. James talks about him. Satan came, and we look through human history. What does he do? He, he deceives Eve in Genesis 3. He hinders the work of God, Zechariah 3. Right? He perverts the word of God, Matthew 4. He does a lot of things. He blinds the eyes of unbelievers in 2 Corinthians 4 from the gospel. He perverts, opposes, deceives, lies, discourages, hates the advancement of Jesus. Now that word scheme simply means to stalk. This is the same language from 1 Peter 5, right? How does Peter describe him? He's like a lion prowling around looking for whom he can devour. He's stalking. He's subtle. He's clever. He's been studying human history for thousands of years, okay? You've only been alive for 80 or less, right? No one's over 80? Okay, just checking, Right, so, so he's got it as far as timeline, seeing things. Now remember, we said he doesn't inherit all the attributes of God. Right, God knows all things, Satan doesn't. God sees all things, Satan can't. Okay, but he knows how to read people, he knows how to watch people, and he knows how to attack people. He knows how to cause discouragement. He knows where to cause accusation in you. Because he's been watching human history. And so as he stalks, we said last week, one of his main schemes is to use what? False doctrine. Right? Paul calls it the doctrine of demons to Timothy. Right? He loves building false systems. So here's what he wants to do. He knows that in the human heart, everyone has a God consciousness. Right? Because he knows, according to Romans 2, because, by the way, the enemy knows the Bible better than you. Okay? So he knows, according to Romans 2, that the moral law has been written on all of our hearts. Okay, and because of that, he knows by cause and effect, he knows there has to be a moral law giver for the moral law that's on our hearts. So he knows about this God consciousness in us. So he knows that there's guilt for sin. He knows we all feel that. So what he'll do is he'll try to take you two different ways. Either make you really legalistic and say you gotta pray a lot more, get on your mat, go to this, you know, thing you gotta eat at or attend church more or do more morality, just be a better you so then you can overcome that sin and guilt you feel. Or he'll swing to the other side and say, hey, just dumb your conscience, be totally irreligious, become totally blatantly immoral, atheistic, forget that God exists or just figure it out that way, right? So he's got, there's something for everyone. It's all-inclusive buffet, have what you want. And so he just starts birthing these belief systems and creating them. You don't think that Satan's behind those things? Why? Because he doesn't want anything to be said that talks about the only way you find fixing, redemption, eternity with God. He hates, he wants all people to come with him separated from God for eternity. And so he will lure you and entice you with believing everything but the shed blood of Jesus, saying he didn't really rise He didn't really atone for sin. His death wasn't really sufficient for you. You're a worthless sinner. Your sins are too great. What did Jesus do? Jesus smashes all of that. He says, if you're a sinner, welcome. Good, yeah, welcome to the family. Right, I didn't come to seek after the righteous, but the sinful. Not the ones who thought they had it all figured out or were legalistic, thinking their religion overcame their sin or blatant, irreligious, atheistic, moral immorality that just kind of covers it up. No, people who are honest about their sin, understand the moral law, are convicted of that, see God, the one creator of all things, and see his death, burial, resurrection is the only hope for salvation. Okay, so I'll take Christ. And we don't, we don't wander after false belief systems. This is why in chapter four, 
What did Paul instruct the pastors and teachers to do? Equip the saints with good doctrine. Why? Later in chapter four, I don't want you to be blown by every wind of doctrine. Just thrown to and from. So he said this is one of the ways that he stalks and uses schemes. He loves to snatch away truth. Think about the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. You know all the seeds fall on all the different grounds, okay? And then the seed falls on the, I think it's the hard ground. Who snatches the seed up? The devil. He loves snatching truth. He loves it when you hear it and it starts to take root and he quickly just tries to grab it. Well, that's not really true. Do you know what he did yesterday? Do you see the kind of life you're living? No, your hope is built in you, not Jesus. And Jesus says, no, it's not. So we need to remember what is truth and what is lie. And he only knows how to do one thing, guys. Only knows how to do one thing. And yes, he practically discourages, deceives, entices, lures, but he only knows how to lie. That's it. So in all the words that he says, all the advancements that he makes, they're not true. He only knows how to lie. He accuses and deceives. So Satan gets everyone, or tries, to get them to buy the lie that Eve bought in Genesis 3, right? Which is what? God's a cosmic killjoy. He wants to take from you, not give from you. He doesn't want you to be God, so he wants to abuse you and make you miserable. Remember, we learned in Genesis that actually God's very generous. That God says, have at it, do whatever you want. There's only one tree you can't eat of. Actually, fundamentally, based on his command, he's displaying that he's generous. I mean, he, he gives us Jesus. He gives us his righteousness. He gives us a new family. He gives us a new hope. Man, he gives us a new father. He gives us a loving community. He gifts you endlessly. He's generous. And so we don't buy the lie that God's a cosmic killjoy, but that God is for our joy and not our begrudging submission. And so what he loves to do every day of every year is use the world system to say, oh, come on, just keep sleeping together. It's not a big deal. Man, God isn't really gonna judge the way marriage operates outside of his realm. Like God's not really gonna care if you operate and work this way, or God's not really gonna care if, if you just continue on this persistent sin. Like it's not really a big deal. Man, God doesn't really expect you to love your enemies. Like, just repay evil for evil. I mean, come on. How can he expect you to forgive them for that? He'll just continue to sow these little seeds. He'll use the whole world system to do it. So when you start buying the whole lie, going, oh, yeah. And all of a sudden, you're on that bandwagon. And you're looking at your old faith family going, they're nuts. Because Satan doesn't just shut the lights off. He just dims them over time, Right? You all know that, right? Where even like a sunrise, if you, if, you, if you don't look at it for a while, then all of a sudden look at it, whoa, the sun came up, right? But if you watch it, you don't even notice because it's so subtle. And all of a sudden you're like, whoa, it's, it's daytime. Right? That's, how, that's how Satan works. He doesn't just shut the lights off. Just over time, he just dims them. And, and here's just an example, right? Because I think that... Um, we have to understand his deception. And understand, let me, let me caveat this. I'm not a guy who believes the demon is in your TV, 
okay? So I'm not saying if you own a TV or VCR, you listen to music that isn't solely Christian, that, that you're a demon, you're possessed by Satan, okay? So just, just hear me out on that first, okay? Now I'm gonna lay before you just, just a thought on this deception because I do think we have to see the way that God, you, God, wow, the way the enemy uses the world system to advance what he wants, okay? For example, let's say I, I stood up here and, and I said one Sunday, I just started teaching you all that, you know what, you guys aren't violent enough. You need to be a little bit more violent. Okay, you'd be like, no one would stand for that, right? You'd fire me, right? I mean, you'd be like, no, no one's gonna, or what, let's say I said, hey, you're not, you're not immoral enough. Just, just dabble in some more immorality. Come on, man. Like, get going. Like, you guys, marriage isn't really a big deal. I mean, just start, you know, kind of coveting your neighbor's wife. No one would stand for that, right? I know you don't have a whole lot of money, so just steal a little bit. Just take some from 7-Eleven. Like, it's not gonna be a big deal, right? No one in this room would stand for that. You know what's nuts? Go put it to music. I'm serious. The exact same things I just said. All of a sudden, you start listening to it. Oh, yeah, that's a catchy beat. Wow, that's a cool message. Yeah. All of a sudden, people are all singing it. Satan starts to creep in, using the world system. And all of a sudden, you totally, you don't care. You totally stand for it. You'll play it out of your car. You'll let everybody hear it. Do you, not, do you not see that? Like, like, do you not realize that when I say he uses the world system to deceive you and dupe you, that it works? So all of a sudden you got people at these, at these you know, raves or these people at these concerts that love Christians, right, who go, they love just screaming out things that are utterly demonic. It's a work of Satan. We have to be so careful what we let infiltrate and, and, and change our understanding and our view and how we think. And is truth doing that? Or are you just let media culture and whatever the world system is just teach you what is right, right? It's, it's deceiving, guys. Look, again, I'm not saying there are some great bands out there that sing good music that aren't Christians. But I'm saying there's also... A lot of music that's being played, TV shows being watched, things that are being advanced and encouraged that we're so mindless of. We don't even realize the ways that it is actually affecting us. So I'm just saying he's deceitful. Suddenly, everybody listens to him. Suddenly, everybody agrees with that message. So we have to be aware of that. What's another thing he loves to do in his schemes and in his lying is make you think that you are not at all secure in Jesus. I feel like this is the life of the Christian. You ever feel that way? I feel so unstable, so insecure. I sinned yesterday. Is his blood enough? Is his sacrifice enough? I mean, did he really rise from the dead? I need to get to Easter again. Give me an Easter sermon. I'm just gonna go online, listen to all my Easter sermons. So I remember that he did rise, did resurrect. Oh, now, uh, apologetics, man, I just, I don't know if I can trust the Bible. I mean, my, my buddy at school said that, the, you know, the books in the can aren't really the ones that are supposed to be there. And I don't know, he said that, you know, that verse contradicts this verse. And I don't know, he said that Satan, like, you know, is actually not real. And this is why biologically and chemically and scientifically and uh, all of a sudden, you find yourself just asking all these questions, right? It all comes back to security in Christ. Because if Jesus rose, then he is truth. You can trust everything else he says. So what he'll do is he'll start sowing seeds in you of unbelief. He'll start telling you you need to pray harder. You need to have more devotions. You need to go to church more. You need to do more good works. Good deeds, go feed the poor more, go on a few more missions trips, 
Listen, not as an appropriate act of worship out of a heart that loves Jesus. That's right and godly and good. He'll do it in the way that motivates you to think you're earning favor, earning righteousness, and God is loving you more because you do those things. Okay, that's the difference. We are all rightly encouraged and should go do works of mission and love the poor and share our faith and give generously and bring our neighbors over for dinner and share our faith and wrestle, right, amidst waging the war of truth and error. We should do all those things. Man, we should strive to be people who walk in holiness, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. But if it's not motivated by chapters one through three, I'm telling you, you're, you're walking in a motivation that ultimately leads you to damnation. That's why we never start in chapters four through six. That's why I said over and over again, man, it's all about your position before practice. Because if you start with chapters four through six, you're gonna think doing all these things is what makes you right and holy and blameless before God. But Jesus does that in him alone. So when you are faced with accusations that say you are not good enough, you are filthy, you are dirty, you are guilty, you scream out the blood of Jesus was enough for me. That he says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that he knows his sheep and they know his name, that no one will snatch him out of his hand, John 10, 28. That he sealed me, Ephesians 1. That's a guarantee. You want to fight with that, Satan? That's a guarantee. No one's busting through that wall. But he will heap on you accusations that you are not secure in Christ, that he did not die for you, that he did not save you, that he does not love you, his love was conditional based on you, so here's what he'll do also. He'll start making you form contracts with God. People who are already saved, so all of a sudden they're saved by covenant through Jesus, but what he'll do is he'll say, no, no, just start doing another contract. Okay, so God, okay, this is what you say you'll do for me. Okay, I'll hold up my end of the bargain. I'll walk in holiness. I'll be a good boy or girl if you do then this for me. And as soon as God doesn't do it for you, you get angry, shake your fist at the heavens, and leave Christianity. Okay, that's not Christianity. Like, he doesn't enter into contracts with you. He entered into a covenant with you. Your mind should be blown. I mean, the Christian realizes the covenant love that God showed him where, wait, I don't do anything and he loves me. Wait, 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 wait. I, I, I sin, right, regularly because I am by nature a sinner and God forgives me in my sin and conforms me to the image of his son and enables me to walk in holiness, enables me to be free from that. We talked last week how it's like that corpse in Romans 7, you just want to get it off you when you're new in Christ? You just want to get that dead corpse off of you, this residual effects of the fall. You want to put to death and put on your new life. Do you believe that Jesus right now, based on you sitting in your chair, doing nothing, loves you, forgives you, gives you mercy and kindness and forgiveness? by you doing nothing. By you not singing one more song. By you not opening up your Bible and reading one text of scripture. Start there. Start there and let joy increase and desire change to where you're doing this because you're overwhelmed by grace. There will be struggle, brothers and sisters, which is why I said we need one another. You need community. When you struggle and when you dip, when you start wandering into error or feeling condemned, you need other people to come around you and speak truth. Remind you, hey, I'm jacked up too. That's why we celebrate Jesus. 
I screwed up yesterday too. Let's embrace the cross together. Let's celebrate Jesus together. Hey, let's go show up at church at Bergen as imperfect people who are made perfect by Jesus. Let's be weary together. We so need one another in this fight, in this war, which is why when Paul says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, what amazes me is not what he affirms, but what he denies. Because I'm not surprised to hear him say we wrestle against evil, demonic forces. Like, that's not, that doesn't surprise me. What surprises me is that he says we don't wrestle flesh and blood. Because here's what I want to say to Paul. You've been beaten and stoned and shipwrecked and left for dead by people. People have hurt you. Right, you've had their flesh tear your flesh. You've had your blood be spilt by other people's blood boiling against yours. So, so that's happening. So how can you say, Paul, that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood? How can you say they're not the enemy? It's with people's hands that stones and rods have almost cost you your life. I think Paul would answer, you're right, first. Flesh and blood is a real enemy. People can hinder the work of Jesus to a degree. They can oppose God's work. They can hate his church. But I think what he's getting at is when someone attacks me or when God's work is hindered, there's something deeper going on. There's something much more subtle and much more dangerous and much more terrible. Because the prince and power of this heir is much more mighty than any of his subjects. And he has an agenda that is much more serious. And so we must overcome every instance of conflict, understanding that's what's behind it. If you're unaware of that, you will think people are your enemy. They're not your enemy. They're actually, the Bible says, captives of the dominion of darkness. We want to free them. We want to free the captives, right? Because that's what we were. So, so that's what we're looking for, liberation from the bondage of sin. So people are not your enemy. Your boss who you don't like, who you think is of the devil, is not your enemy. The Satan is the only one in the Bible who should be our right enemy that we pray against. The one who's behind it. We have to be very careful how we view that, who's much more destructive than meets the eye. Now I love this. Should we react in utter fear and trembling? No, verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. We don't react in fear. We react in readiness. The Christian has no reason to fear. Because you're, you're reading this, you're going, man, this is overwhelming. Wait, this is what's against me? This is what I'm up against? And he doesn't tell us to be fearful. He tells us to be ready. He reminds us, this text is reminding us that victory is to be had. You have the risen Christ who defeated Satan dwelling inside of you. You're on the winning team. So here's how we wage war. Here's how we fight. Victory is promised. What's the evil day? Any day that evil comes is an evil day, which is every day, right? So every day is an evil day. So you know how to stand firm if we read the next number of texts, which we're going to do next week and on, any day that evil comes. So never wake up in the morning going... Today's gonna be a day where evil is free, banished, non-existent. Okay, that'll happen when you wake up in heaven, okay? But not here, all right? So we wake up ready. 
We don't wake up fearful. We don't wake up trembling. We don't wake up handicapped and, and just nervous and overcome with anxiety. We wake up ready. And we put on the armor of God, which we'll get into next week. This is why he says we have the armor at our disposal, which is why he reminds us. James even says, right, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. We know that we have victory in Christ. Paul says this, that when the dust settles, you can stand firm if you do this. We're going to learn what that looks like next week. But I want you to look at this other text in 2 Corinthians 4 as we, as we close here. as how I think these two kind of serve one another. This is what he said in 2 Corinthians 4. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. Why? So that the life of Jesus may be manifested in your literal body. What are both of these texts promising? The devil threw it all at Jesus. And he couldn't be victorious. He threw it all. He couldn't be victorious. Through every ounce of discouragement, every accusation, and he couldn't be victorious. He's tempted Christians who are in Christ from the beginning, and he hasn't been victorious. He may have been victorious in, in making them believe things for a time, but it never snatched them out of the grip of the sovereign God who saves you and seals you and shed his blood for you and absorbed the wrath of God for you and forgave you endlessly so you could wake up every morning going, I'm not condemned today. Like, I, I know I'm feeling it. I'm not talking about what you feel. I'm talking about landing on what is true. And if you don't learn to land on what's true, you'll be shipwrecked your whole life. And you'll, every day you'll be wondering, based on how you feel, because culture and everything else teaches you that it's all about emotion. It's all about how you feel about something. Are there emotions involved? Absolutely. Are there, is there reveling in the glories of Christ? Absolutely. But that's not going to get you security. It's not going to give you confidence. The only thing that's going to give you unshakable confidence is standing in what you know is absolutely rock solid and unchanging, unchanging regardless of how you feel. Because tomorrow morning, half of you may wake up in utter despair. What do you land on then? How you feel? No. You are afflicted in every way, but you're not crushed. You are perplexed, but you're not driven to despair. You're persecuted, you're not forsaken. You're struck down, you are not destroyed. You will feel those things, brother or sister, feel them. That's fine, feel the weight of it. We live in a broken world, a fractured world, a sin-stained world, but you have the victor, the risen Christ, the sovereign king who says in chapter one, and to thee raised you up and seated you in the heavenly places so that his authority is at your right hand. Take joy in that. Revel in that. That we're seated with him, his authority is at our side. This is how he sent us out, right? Matthew 28. What does he say? Hold on, hold on. Before you go do anything, hey, all authority on heaven and earth is given to who? Me. 
Okay, now, based on that reality, go make disciples. Go wage war. Go advance the kingdom. And as you come over the crest of the hill and you see the enemy who is aggressive and he is subtle and he is clever and he is big and he is large, he does have some control and he is powerful to a degree, remember that the very one who sent you out has full authority over every cosmic power, over every advancement of the adversary, over every dominion, over every age to come that he is in control of all of them. It may seem unbearable, but you have Christ. So we stand firm in his strength. Not in ours, in his. He says, put on the full armor so when it's all over, you will stand firm. Next week, we're gonna learn from Paul and for a few weeks, how we do that. How do we stand firm in light of this? And that's gonna be an exciting time together. Let's pray in expectation, God, thank you that you're a God who calls us to advance the kingdom of light, that we actually get to participate on the side that has already declared victory. But God, we know that the reality of even in that victory, the war is real. The feelings are real. The aggression is real. The pain is real. The feelings, the emotions of our heart is real. God, would you put into your church disciplines and understandings that are rooted in and founded upon what you say in your word that it's sufficient for us. We don't look for secret strength in of ourselves. We, we appeal to the strength that's been given us in Christ that we live out the life of who we already are and who we've already been made into by Jesus, God, in this weird already not yet phase that we're in where we are redeemed and saved and forgiven and sealed yet not fully glorified. Help us to understand what that means. God, give us wisdom in, in walking into the battle wearing the armor right. Not just knowing it's there, not even just knowing why it exists, but knowing how to put it on. God, strengthen us as a church as, God, you seem to be doing some spectacular things in our midst, that you are advancing your kingdom, that you are leading us forward. Oh, God, may we never think that opposition now will dwindle or take a back seat, but now is all the more reason to pray and to labor together and to bear arms together and to wage war together. God, may you bring greater unity and familiness in this time. May you do a special work within us as we lock arms together under the chief general, Jesus, who has called us into this and commanded us to go, yet with full authority and full power and full ability. As we observe the Lord's Supper, may we treasure and celebrate this Jesus who overcame not just sin and death, but Satan himself. In Jesus' name, amen.